From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Scoliosis is a sideways curvature of the spine that occurs most often during the growth spurt just before puberty. It affects about 3% of adolescents. Most cases of scoliosis are mild, but some spine deformities continue to get more severe as children grow and may require bracing or surgery to correct the curve. On today's program, we'll learn more about scoliosis and a new treatment option from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, adult eating disorders. And a career retrospective with a longtime Mayo Clinic obstetrician-gynecologist. All that, along with a health minute from Vivian Williams, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Scoliosis, it's an abnormal sideways curvature of the spine. And if you have a child with scoliosis, the curve and the curve is moderately large. Traditional treatments have been either bracing or if the curve progresses too much, surgery. And the most common type of scoliosis surgery is called spinal fusion. Surgeons connect two or more of the bones of the spine, the vertebrae, together so that they can't move. And that does straighten the spine, but it has some lifelong consequences in addition to limiting the motion of the spine. I'm not a surgeon, but it doesn't sound good. No, it isn't one you want to have. Right. Now, for some patients, there's an alternative to fusing the spine for severe scoliosis. It's called a tether implant. And joining us in studio to talk about scoliosis and the new procedure is Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Todd Milbrandt. Welcome to the program. Thanks for the invitation. I really appreciate being able to talk about this and any other pediatric issue for us in orthopedics. So uh, tell our audience, uh, you haven't been at the Mayo Clinic forever. You came from somewhere else and yeah, were I recruited am. here, so that's how good he is. <laughs> right, well, I'm a foreign man, for, in a foreign land. I started here five years ago. Before that, I worked at the Shriners Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky for about 10 years. So um, lots of uh, great things about both places, but I appreciate being able to work here my family has settled here so it's been a it's been a good fit for if us if your wife is happy here you got to be so let's talk about scoliosis we we described the fact that it's a curvature of the spine a sideways mm-hmm. curvature of the spine why does that happen yeah, so that's a really good question, uh, Dr. Shives. For us, we actually don't know. There's lots of investigation going on into the genetics of what causes scoliosis. People try, we know that it's not one gene. If it were one gene, it'd be easy to figure out and we would have figured it out already. More than likely, it is a complex sets of genes and maybe even uh, different types of those complex genes within different racial types may uh, may may have some influence on why scoliosis occurs um, but we do know that it is genetic because it does tend to run in families um, uh, even if uh, the child that we're seeing has a moderate curve if they look through their entire family, history or other people, cousins, far second, first cousins, they'll find someone usually that has a scoliosis within it. And so this is not usually a spontaneous mutation. It tends to follow in in families. I thought that would be because it's just so common. I mean, for me, I always just heard, you know, the kids we would 
get tested and, oh, you're a taller girl, Mm -hmm. so that's why you have scoliosis. Yeah, no, (laughs) it really is because your aunt or uncle or one of your parents, clearly one of your parents, Mm -hmm. carried some genetic factor that then would convey that to you. Uh, we We did a good job in the 60s, 70s, and 80s of doing screening. Um, and then in the in the kind of the mid 90s, early 2000s, the cost of those screening uh, procedures uh, was kind of weighed against the benefit. And unfortunately for us in pediatric orthopedics, that meant that the school nurse was is no longer a part of the school systems. And so now our universal screening that happened pretty much all the way across the United States does not uh, really happen anymore. So we rely more on our primary care physicians to try and do that. Um, but it's not the same as lining everybody up in a gym and having the school nurse uh, look f- at their back for scoliosis. And so I think we that don't do that anymore. No. Mm-mm. Good uh, old days, Tom. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there are some uh, patients who have scoliosis that could be caused by something else, mm-hmm. uh, a birth defect, correct? Or that's you right. can have it with muscular dystrophy or cerebral palsy, but that's unusual. That's correct. And uh, what we were talking about is what the category of, if you look it up on the internet, called idiopathic scoliosis. Meaning we don't know. We don't know. <laughs> and, uh, the, but there are specific reasons why some people get them. Those that you mentioned, plus there could be abnormal, abnormalities within the bones themselves. Some people are born with, instead of blocks for their vertebra, they're born with triangles and blocks for their vertebra. Uh, in addition, they could potentially have something wrong with their spinal cord itself. Uh, these are, of, though, of the grand majority. Those are in the 1% to 2% of the kids who have scoliosis. The grand majority of these these kids have what we would call idiopathic scoliosis. The school nurse made me believe what I mentioned earlier, that it's more likely females than males yes. that have this. Is that true? That is true. It's usually seven to one, females to male. Uh, and so, uh, you know, our scoliosis clinics that we uh, take care of really uh, are full of teenage girls. And so that's who we really care for. Um, although boys can get it, um, sometimes the boys are, if you look at their results, they are stiffer to break meaning they are tougher to brace, and also uh, their surgery is a little bit less corrective and a little bit more, um, we lose a little bit more blood. Um, so they are, they are a different entity altogether. And are taller children more likely to get it than shorter children? I'm not so sure that I know of an association between tall or short. Okay. Um, All All right, no more school nurses uh, to check these kids. So every parent out there who is listening or watching should check their child. That's right. And and what what are they looking for? So the easiest way to do it is is look at them in a bathing suit. Uh, You look for their shoulder asymmetry. So when you stand uh, and you look at their back, you say, is one shoulder very much higher than the other shoulder? That's a one sign. The other sign could be if you ask them to bend over, you can look for a prominence within their ribs, meaning they look like they have a rib hump compared to the other side. It's very hard really to look at the back of a child and trace out if they have scoliosis or a curvature that way. So instead, what we do is we look at the three-dimensional twist that also occurs at the same time with scoliosis. Do children grow out of scoliosis? No. So once they have it, that will be the curve they will have forever. There are some kids who will take an x-ray and they lean one way and it's a little bit sagged and then you take an x-ray six months later because you're worried about a scoliosis and then they're straight. I'm not sure that they actually ever had scoliosis and that they were just being a wiggle worm when they had their x-ray taken. (laughs) And why is it important to to discover whether or not your child has scoliosis? What are the complications if untreated? So the I think the key part is early discovery allows us some options 
treatment options that late discovery may not. And so that's why I think it's important to do it when the child is pre-adolescent. Um, so a brace doesn't work when you are all done growing, for example. Um, this tether surgery, which we will talk about again, does not really work unless the child has growth remaining. If we let a scoliosis just occur and get large and then the child continues to live their adult life, the consequences of that are that that curve will continue to worsen if the curve measures 50 degrees or more throughout the rest of their life. They'll add on one to two degrees per year for every year that they live. And, you know, we're talking about 18-year-old children, so they have a long life to live. And because of that, a large amount of progression could be possible. And so what is the consequence of that? Well, once the curves get in the 100-degree range, then you can start to see cardio and pulmonary issues with that. So but it presses heart and lung problems. That's right. It, it does do that, but only with the really large curves. More than likely, though, if you have a 100-degree curve and you try and wear any amount of normal Western clothing, you will look significantly deformed. And so I think that some of this is the fact that we live in a Western society um, and that if you allow a curve to get very, very large, it will be hard to be accepted that way. So if you catch it relatively early, you can hopefully avoid surgery. So that means bracing? Yeah. So that our first line of treatment for any child with uh, spinal curvature greater than 20 degrees, uh, and the degrees is measured on an x-ray, how much tilt there actually is, um, is a brace. Uh, the the good news about the brace is that it's very effective. A large randomized control trial that went through the United States proved that the brace works about 75% of the time. The hard part is that the child actually has to wear it, yeah, right? And, it, yeah, and if you no know fun. teenage people or children, that is Girl. a very girls, <laughs> that is a very difficult um, uh, sell sometimes. And they have to wear it a lot. They have to wear it 16 to 18 hours a day, and they have to wear it seven days a week. And it doesn't cure the scoliosis. It just hopefully prevents it from the curve from getting worse. That is absolutely correct. So our goal with our bracing is that we keep that small curve a, sm- a small curve and do not allow it to get into the surgical range, which we would consider over 50 degrees. All right. Our guest is Mayo Clinic Pediatric Orthopedic Surgeon Dr. Todd Milbrandt. We've been talking about scoliosis. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about additional treatment, particularly surgery, and a new device called a t- Heather, which might be a huge advantage for some young children. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest, pediatric orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Todd Milbrandt. We've been talking about scoliosis. The most common form is idiopathic, meaning we don't know what causes it. We've talked about the conservative option of bracing. And if that doesn't work, if the curve progresses despite conservative measures, what's next? In the past, the only option were, was to wait it out until it got to be a larger curve and then do a fusion operation. And that was really the only card we had left to play with these kids. And a fusion operation basically definitely corrects the scoliosis to straight, but then takes away all the movement of the spine over the segments that we have to fuse. Now, how, tell us about that operation. How long does it take? I mean, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Usually a 
six to eight hour surgery with four to five days as inpatient. Unfortunately, it's relatively painful for these kids, but they do get over it. Um, I'm not going to say that there are that it's a disaster, but it is a risky operation. I think the hardest part for the families to understand is that it's irreversible. So we fuse this spine into a straight position. Those vertebral segments won't ever move again. For the families that really sought us out uh, to try and come up with alternatives, that was what they were the most disturbed about, was the fact that, yeah, they're great that their spine is straight, but the fact that they now uh, can't move as well as they did before was disturbing to them. For the rest of their life. Yeah. Yeah. Two questions. How do you get the vertebra to fuse to knit together, and how do you get the spine straight? The way we do those operations is that we use uh, surgical intraoperative navigation. So we use a CT scan that's obtained uh, with the patient asleep. We have special tools that then allow us to coordinate placing the pedicle screws, which are screws that go into those vertebral bodies, so that we miss all of the most important parts of the... Uh, so the pedicles are on both sides of the spinal cord. That's so right. you don't want to miss. Don't want to miss. And you also, the aorta's up front, so you don't want to miss that either. <laughs> this is so, making me a little uncomfortable, but continue. <laughs> <laughs> so we place those. Many times there are two to three millimeters in width. They all, this uh, surgical navigation allows us to do that. We then connect these vertebral screws together with a solid metal rod. That rod in general is usually anywhere between 5.5 millimeters in width to 6.0 millimeters in width. So this, I mean, it's a regularly, it's like a, a very large rod that we would use. Is and you jack up the concave side of the curb. That's right. So to try and pull it to a straighter position. Is this generally? in the by the shoulders and the low back and the neck where do you usually perform this so we have to use we ha- we perform it wherever it's needed and so many there are lots of different flavors for scoliosis sometimes they're in the chest sometimes they're in the low back sometimes unfortunately they're in both of those places so, so double curve double curve and if they're big double curve then you end up having to fuse the entirety of the spine mm-hmm. okay tell me about this tether surgery yeah so the one of my favorite parts about the Mayo Clinic is that is our credo is you know the patients always come first and so our one of our patients was uh, had a scoliosis large enough where they were looking at a fusion operation should they wait a little bit longer and they didn't want to wait any longer and they weren't tolerating the brace anymore so, so now we're talking about a, a curve that's 50 degrees or greater that's huh? well actually she was in the 45 degree okay. but she still had time remaining in her growth so more than likely she was going to hit that 50 degree mark and she didn't like the brace and or the brace like wasn't working or that's right that's a big curve and she, this child was also an athlete and wanted to be able to return and do all of those athletic things that she would like to do and with a fused spine, it's difficult to do. It's difficult. I mean, some of our kids can do them, but if you go top to bottom, um, it becomes very difficult. So she came to us, and she actually had said, um, I want a vertebral body tether. I want a tether surgery. And she said, um, well, we she said, learned we about that? The internet. kids on the Internet <laughs> uh-huh. figure it all out. So mm-hmm. uh, she actually went to the place that was doing it at the time and then came back and says, I, we learned about it, but we want you and Dr. Larson to perform the case. It's one of our colleagues. It's one of my mm-hmm. surgical colleagues that we do all these cases together, another pediatric orthopedic surgeon. So mm-hmm. we learned about it. We practiced. We had um, we practiced on some cadavers, other cadavers. Yep. And we set it all up, and we were confident we could do it in a safe way. And we did our first one now almost four years. 
years ago. Really? We, we waited an entire year to make sure that she did well and everything was fine. And then we started our program here. And that includes a, uh, a study with the FDA. So we started our own FDA study to, to make sure that we were doing it all correctly, make sure that we were sending them information so they knew what we were doing. And then once we that started, we have now done 45 tethers um, uh, in the past four years. All right. Now, tell us what you mean by a tether. How does this thing work? Yeah. So it's a kind of an interesting concept. We take, uh, we place the vertebral body screws. So in the front, we place a camera in the chest. We look in the chest and we find the vertebral body. We then place screws into those vertebral bodies and we literally connect those screws with what looks like a climbing rope. It is a clearly a medical grade uh, braided soft rope, but cables, by cables, kind of cable, basically yeah. cable. And by doing that, we tighten it on the side that is the convexity or the far side of the curve. And by doing that, we then straighten the curve. Um, and by doing that, <laughs> Charles is asleep. I know. <laughs> and I know, but it's making that, me sit up straighter. I know. <laughs> and by doing that, we can take advantage of growth in these kids because if we put pressure on the high side and decrease pressure on the low side of the scoliosis, the child scoliosis will actually continue to correct over time as they grow. When do most kids quit growing? On average, boys, it's 16, and on girls, it's 15. Okay. Have you seen any complications? So there have been a few complications and a little bit of extra fluid around the chest, um, which required just an aspiration of that. And oh, so around the lungs, around some the fluid lungs, collected? That's right, okay. fluid collection. We were able to take that out. Thank you. Not um, a big deal. Not a big deal. And we have not had any neuromonitoring changes or anything problematic with our spinal cord. Do you take <sighs> the tether out when they're done growing? That's a great question. Um, it's a very very large surgery, and so most of the time we leave it in. We know that more than likely this will break over time because it is a rope across mo- motion segments. But by taking advantage of growth, we will change the vertebra from being wedged at the apex to now being squares. So then the tether is no longer needed because they will have grown into a straight position, and then the tether will break and that will be okay. So the the curve corrects itself over time because of the the tether. That's tension. right. So we tension yeah. on one side and then by growth it's kind of like staking a tomato plant. You turn it into you kind of grow it into the right position and that way it grows straight. Do you Perfect. ever overcorrect? I mean did you make it too tight? Yeah, so that is one of the other complications uh, that has been described is that we make it too tight and they have too much growth remaining and it actually takes the curve from one side and puts it onto the other side. But so, they keep, they keep their motion. They keep they their tell, motion when, when they do over. that, and we can we go we've gone in and cut the tether uh, if they had have had any overcorrection. We've had one overcorrection. And Big cable mo- cutters? Oh. Uh, no. <laughs> we have to use our camera. How <laughs> is that patient one doing? Oh, he's doing very well. Mm-hmm. Actually, she went back and uh, performed her high school uh, sports and now has gone on to college. Great. Wow. Pediatric orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Todd Milbrandt. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for letting me talk about it. Appreciate it. Coming up on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss adult eating disorders. And we'll have a career retrospective with a longtime Mayo Clinic obstetrician gynecologist. Coming up, a health minute with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. A diagnosis of breast cancer can be scary and difficult. 
Patients often have many questions about treatment options and how the disease will change their daily lives. Dr. Amy Degnam, a Mayo Clinic surgeon, says breast cancer is not one size fits all and treatments depend on many factors. She says breast cancer is an entire spectrum of disease from very low-grade ductal carcinoma in situ, which is almost similar to just an atypical finding that's considered benign, all the way up to the other end of the spectrum, which is very high-grade invasive tumors. Now, treatment depends on several factors, including what the cancer looks like under a microscope. Some tumors have strong estrogen receptors on the outside of their tumor cells, and some tumors do not. Cell receptors determine treatment options, which can be targeted to specific types of tumors. Dr. Degnam says in terms of creating treatment plans, it is quite complex, and she recommends that that be done through a multidisciplinary team. Treatment plans may include surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, and medication depending on type, size, stage, location, and grade of tumor. The encouraging news is that treatment for breast cancer keeps getting better. Dr. Degnam says that we have come a long way in the last few decades, and most women survive breast cancer. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, a recent article in the journal Mayo Clinic Proceedings concluded that adults with eating disorders do not seek professional help as often as they should. And that was particularly true for adult men and ethnic and racial minorities. The article was accompanied by an editorial written by Mayo Clinic psychologist and eating disorders expert, Dr. Leslie Sim. She joins us in studio. It's very nice to have you here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Dr. Sim, nice to see you. Nice to see you. I'm really surprised this is for adult men that this is a big problem. It actually is. About 10 million men uh, suffer from eating disorders in the United States at any one time. So it is a, it's a big problem that they're not seeking help. Well, you know women go to the doctor and men don't. No, I think yeah. just the stereotypical, if you said who is a patient with eating disorders, I think nine out of, 10 out of 10 times people would say women, not men. Absolutely. And I think that's the problem is there's a lot of myths about eating disorders that I think deter men and ethnic minorities and a lot of people from seeking help who don't fit the stereotype. And when you say eating disorders, most of us just think of anorexia nervosa, but there there are several different types. Can you tell us, explain that to us? Absolutely. So uh, anorexia nervosa is actually the most rare of the eating disorders, but I think it's most well-known. I think it gets the most media attention. People are very intrigued by anorexia. But actually, there's two other eating disorders, bulimia nervosa, which is really where individuals are trying to control their weight or shape, but they oftentimes ha- have experiences where they lose control over their eating and they eat large amounts of food, um, what we describe as binge eating. Um, and because they feel so terrible about that experience, they will oftentimes try to compensate for the calories they consume by um, doing things like vomiting or using laxatives or going to the gym for six hours or even not eating the next day. Hmm. And then there's a third? And the third actually is binge eating disorder, which affects a a large number of American adults, about 3%. uh, And it is associated with binge eating episodes, so eating a large amount of food and feeling very distressed about it. This is not something that people feel good about. They feel very distressed, and it really affects their health and their well-being. It makes sense, then, that this is so misunderstood. If the least known or the least 
often occurring, the anorexia, is the most widely known one. Of course, you're setting everybody up for failure when it comes to eating disorders. Absolutely. I mean, if you think uh, that anorexia is an eating disorder and you don't know about others, then you think, well, I'm, I'm not that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't weigh, you know, I'm not emaciated. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm overweight. And actually, a lot of overweight and obese individuals struggle with very serious and even life-threatening eating disorders. Are these mental or physical disorders? Um, they're categorized as psychiatric or what we call mental disorders, um, but they have significant effects on physical health, probably more than any other um, psychiatric illness. But it's so interesting because it, one of the, I think this was a statement from your editorial, and it surprised me because it said eating disorders have the highest rate of mortality and place some of the highest costs on the system of any psychiatric disorder. True. Absolutely true. Um, about 20% of individuals with um, anorexia will die. So thinking one out of five individuals will die from the illness. Um, some of them die from health complications and some of them die by suicide. Um, is and, it malnutrition? Is that- um, malnutrition is one um, part of the uh, mortality risk. Uh, but other as suicide is actually a high risk for people with anorexia because it's it really affects one's uh, quality of life. And what about the bulimia? In the, in the binge eating disorder. Um, they Those also people? have high risks for health complications um, and, and mortality as well. So with bulimia, it, it can relate to um, electrolyte imbalances as, as a reason for mortality. Um, and with binge eating disorder, it are more of your longer-term risks for diabetes and cardiovascular health complications. So um, I'm going to assume that what we started, that a significant number of men and racial minorities um, they must be more likely to um, have binge eating on bulimia. Is that true? Uh, absolutely. Uh, so what we're finding is that with uh, binge eating disorder in particular, there's a higher rate of men than the other two um, conditions, um, which are predominantly female, uh, as well as a higher um, ethnic minority proportion. Um, if you identify these people or if they do seek help, what's the normal treatment regimen? I mean, is it a, is it a curable problem? It's treatable? absolutely treatable. And that's why it's so um, disheartening when we're seeing people not getting treatment or even identified as having a problem because they're very treatable, particularly if you treat them early before a lot of the health complications set in and some of the mental health complications set in. Uh, so very treatable. We use um, uh, cognitive behavior therapy, which is a type of talk therapy that involves different changing behaviors and thoughts around eating weight and shape. Um, And some people will benefit from uh, some kind of uh, medication. Not everybody needs a medication, but some people will benefit from that as well as a combination treatment. Nutritional counseling also part of this? Uh, Nutritional counseling is sometimes part of uh, a treatment package. Um, and is this normally outpatient treatment, or do you, are some people bad enough yeah, that they need inpatient treatment? So um, most of the time it's outpatient, but for some people who have more of the health complications or are failing outpatient treatment, then we will consider a, a more intensive treatment, which might be considered a, a partial hospital program, a day treatment program, going from 8 in the morning until 5 and getting treatment more intensively, or going inpatient and being hospitalized um, or a ro- longer-term residential 
treatment program. Does this normally require lifelong counseling and follow-up, or is it a matter of weeks or months, and then most people are pretty much better without continuing help? Very good question. I think it depends on the eating disorder um, and how severe it is and how long it's been going. But for a lot of people, they can be treated in four months of cognitive behavior therapy. So it is very treatable. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes it takes a bit longer. I think with anorexia, um, it, it can take up a year or longer. What should family members look for when they're seeing their loved ones that might be struggling with something like binge eating? Absolutely. Um, so what we're, we oftentimes see is, uh, People start to modify their food intake. They might be saying, well, I'm not very hungry in the morning and then skip meals and then um, eat in secret um, for uh, family members might find food missing. Um, oftentimes, this is a very shameful experience for the person, uh, so they, they don't want to disclose that they're struggling. Um which can also add to challenges seeking help. Um, we will oftentimes see people being very isolated. Um, we can see weight changes and other challenges. Well, the ar- article pointed out a real problem. A lot of people out there with eating disorder do not seek help. How, what can we do? How can we improve the situation? Um, I think... Um, Better public health campaigns obviously will will be helpful, but I do think the responsibility is on physicians to better identify these people. I mean, physicians are educators, and you primary know, pe- care physicians. Primary care physicians. I mean, people don't know don't know that they have cancer. They don't come in saying, "Hey, I have cancer. I'd like treatment." Um, they need their physician to identify the problem. And I think, unfortunately, um, healthcare providers were all very um, subject to some of these stereotypes as well. And so, unfortunately, we do, we. Do do targeted screening, where we're screening the people we think are at high risk, but we're not screening universally. So we're not, um, you know, when you come into the clinic, you don't fill out a eating disorder questionnaire. Yeah, you do a PHQ yep. kind of thing to depression find out what your depression universal. is, but there could be, I mean, because unlike cancer, there's no shame associated with cancer. Yes. You know, you, if they come in, this is going to be something that they already for some reason, feel like they have to hide absolutely because of the shame associated with it. You're absolutely right. So um, having those tools where we're screening everyone and we're not just thinking all screen, you know, college age girls mm-hmm. or, you know, teenage skinny teenagers. Um, I'm going to screen everyone no matter what their weight s- or size is. Um, age. All right. Mayo Clinic psychologist Dr. Leslie Sim, eating disorders are more common than most of us realize, and unfortunately, not enough of those who suffer seek professional help, particularly men, not surprising, I guess, and ethnic and racial minorities. We've also learned that eating disorders have the highest rate of mortality of any psychiatric illness. Pretty incredible. It's apparent we need to do a better job of screening for eating disorders among adolescents and adults. Everybody, right, Dr. Sim? Absolutely. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic psychologist, Dr. Leslie Sim. Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have a career retrospective with Dr. Robert Stanhope. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, it is no secret. We can all learn something from those who went before us, and especially those who were successful no matter what they did. There is just no substitute for experience. Today on Mayo Clinic Radio, our guest is a now-retired, long-time obstetrician-gynecologist at the Mayo Clinic, a woman's doctor. He was loved by his patients and received multiple honors and awards during his career, including Teacher of the Year, an Excellence in Teaching Award from Mayo Medical School, a Leadership Award from the Zumbro Valley Medical Society, and a Humanitarian Award from the Mayo Clinic Alumni Association. Here to share some highlights from his career as a physician and as a captain in the United States Army serving in Vietnam is Dr. Robert Stanhope. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Dr. Stanhope, good to see you. Nice to so, see you. Can, first of all, congratulations on that stellar career. I, I want to know, how did you keep it going that long? Well, it's very interesting. I enjoyed taking care of patients, and I enjoyed academic work, and uh, did a little less research than academic work in patient care, but I really love patient care. Did you ever feel burned out? No, I didn't. Well, it's sort of interesting, isn't it? Because uh, that's uh, there's a lot of talk now about uh, physicians becoming burned out, and the statistics are pretty alarming. Is there, but there do you are 5% that? of physicians who are burned out and actually quit. There's 5% of physicians who aren't burned out and have been very productive. In 95% practice. who aren't burned out, you mean? No. Is that what you said? There are 5% for sure who aren't burned out. And there's a number of them who are in the process. And I think, I think the situation is evolving. That is to say, physicians between the age of uh, 55 and 65 are more likely to feel burned out because of the activities and changes that have occurred in medicine from a paper record to an electronic record to, uh, yeah, it, it really changed over our lifetime, Fundamentals didn't it? for financing and for cost of medicine. And the ones that are between 30 and 45 or so, I think they're doing well. But the ones under under 30, I think, are, are excellent. They handle the electronic system so well. I learned from them. Yeah. Well, isn't it true? Well, and just like we learned, uh, they learned from us, we learned from them. That's yeah. true. And they're a lot better at the electronic health record than than we for sure. <laughs> so tell us, why did you decide on a career in medicine? What prompted you? Well, I have a, a, grand, a great-grandfather who was a physician, a homeopath, and a grandfather who was an infectious disease physician and handled tuberculosis at a sanitarium in Milwaukee. And I have a father-in-law who's a physician and a mom who's a nurse and a sister who's a nurse. And I, as a young person, decided I was going to go into medicine. I never changed was because of the people around you, family people. I think people. because of the people around me. And why obstetrician, gynecologist? Well, honestly, I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon like Tom. <laughs> mm-hmm. and Well, it's very competitive. <laughs> I had a girlfriend whose father was president of the American College of OBGYN. I was consequently influenced. Hmm. And then in right? the military, in Vietnam, I had the opportunity to uh, care for a, a lot of uh, patients and the soldiers in, I was in military advisory command, that's MACV, not the U.S. Army forces, and I was an advisor, and the soldiers were leaving the field of battle and coming home because their wife was pregnant and having a baby. So we oh, okay. developed the same practices that we have in the United States in the country of Vietnam for the Vietnamese soldiers and their wives. 
Did you volunteer to go to Vietnam? No. Um, no. And so were you on the on the Berry Plan? That's I was where the Berry they, Plan. They let you finish so much. Immediately after and, my internship, I okay. was I shipped was off. Shipped off. And uh, so you weren't doing. You were doing everything over there, not just OBJIT. I was primarily taking care of the the military advisors in that in those units the american and military advisors i was their doctor but i was also the advisor to the vietnamese military now you came home with a bronze star didn't you two of them what was that for it was for the service uh for in the military for uh the leadership that i was able to accomplish and didn't they name a, a hospital over there or a maternity? Well, that was the maternity pavilion. They did call it the Kuho San Stanhope Maternity Pavilion. <laughs> oh, yeah, pretty impressive. What's been the most satisfying part of your career? Oh, practicing at Mayo, absolutely. But you weren't always here. I no, mean, I wasn't. Where, did, where were you before you came to Mayo? Well, I, I trained in a residency at uh, Parkland Memorial Hospital, University of Texas, and then did specialty training at MD Anderson Hospital. And then my first job was at uh, Northwestern University Memorial Hospital. Was that a good uh, great training? practice? Was great it? practice. They have eight thousand deliveries a year, and you know, just uh, residents are taking care of most everything, and it's good. Tom told me that uh, you've done some mission work as well. I've done a lot of mission work, and I enjoy that as well. What do and, you do? Well, I do surgery. I've done surgery in. Mongolia. I've done surgery in Haiti, a lot of surgery in Haiti. I've done surgery in Guinea and Kenya. What do the patients there need from you? Well, a lot of the patients in some of those countries had huge uterus, huge fibroid tumors and bleeding and problems like that. And I was able to teach uh, some of those younger colleagues uh, some of the things I learned at Mayo and elsewhere. And that was mostly taking out the uterus? Um, yes. So yes. I mean, those are benign tumors of the uterus, but they can make the enlarge yes. the uterus significantly? Yeah. So you t- did you take care of just women when you were on these mission trips? Yes. You know, I think it's interesting, just like uh, Will and Charlie Mayo, you were training people in Vietnam, you were training people in Haiti, wherever mm-hmm. you went. Uh, how to do those surgeries to remove the fibroids, or that's a uh, very much like what Will and Charlie did. Well, I never thought about that, but that's true. Will and Charlie did a lot of gynecologic surgery. If you had it to do over again, would you still go into OBGYN, or would you be an orthopedic surgeon? That's a very good question. <laughs> you could have worked with Tom. Yeah. Yes, but I, yeah. he's close enough anyway. I, We're neighbors. I, I married yeah. the daughter of a president of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecology. So I was influenced. influenced. But I am really pleased. You do it all over. I do it again. And did the tradition of Stanhope's and medicine continue? Any of your kids or grandkids go into medicine? Well, it's very interesting. I have uh, a son-in-law that's an anesthesiologist, and I have a daughter who has practiced uh, nursing to a Mm -hmm. degree. But most of my family, I think my grandsons are going to go into medicine. Oh, I hope so. I, I love so Grandpa, too. I'm sure. Yeah. So uh, what would you tell a, a young person? Um, those, family, grand, those grandkids. Yeah. If they were talking about a career in medicine, would you encourage them? I would encourage them very much. been a fabulous career for it's you. It's been an excellent career. 
And you do it all over again. I would do it over again. In fact, <laughs> I, I, I didn't, almost I as didn't good really as want to retire. Yeah. But you, so you quit doing surgery and then, but you continued to work a, as a medical yes. obstetrician gynecologist. Yes. I quit during surgery about six years ago and then I did uh, medical gynecology at Mayo for two days a week and then was in Red Wing, part of Mayo's system, mm-hmm. uh, and did surgery for three years there. I haven't done surgery in two years, but I'm okay now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you mow the lawn, and I see you take down trees and everything yeah. else. So yeah, you're still doing <laughs> Your surgery. Your neighbors, anyway. that's right. <laughs> Dr. Robert Stanhope, a long, productive, extraordinary career as an obstetrician gynecologist at the Mayo Clinic. Now he not only cared for women in the United States, he spent a great deal of time caring for women in low-income and low-resource countries around the world. Truly, an exceptional and a noble medical career, Dr. Robert Stanhope. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.